John asking all of you to pray for me, and I feel like I need to put one person's mind at ease. Um, Kelly, if I look over and your eyes are closed, I will assume that you're praying. (laughs) Do with that what you will. Okay. Uh, We're going to be in James, continuing our look in James that uh, Pastor Randy has been taking us through. So if you want to, you can uh, flip over to James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Um, But as I was preparing for this, a few moments in my life kind of kind of came to my mind that uh, sort of, in a very loose way, uh, deal with what James is talking about. Now, those of you who did not know me when I was younger, this might come as a surprise to you, but I have not always been the Adonis you see before you. Um, when I was younger in, why are you guys laughing? When I was younger in, in elementary school, in junior high, in high school, I was what my mom would say, husky. Um, and, and I have no doubt that any day now, uh, her promises to me will be, will come true and I will indeed lose this baby weight. It's coming. I believe it. Um, but, my size was not because I lived a sedentary life. In fact, um, I, I thoroughly have enjoyed and currently do enjoy sports and, and athletic endeavors um, and, and always was found playing outside and playing pickup games with my friends. Now, I, I never played on any organized teams. I didn't even do any little league. I wasn't on the swim team like your your real pastor. I, I didn't rock a mullet on the football team like your minister of, of music. Um, but but all of my experience was more of the, you know, pickup game variety. But there are some moments that stand out in my mind, kind of highlights, if you will, of my athletic career. Uh, and a couple of them came to mind as I was studying our verses. I, I remember, um, pro- I was probably in high school, late high school, and uh, we were playing uh, two-hand touch football in the church parking lot. Not here, but up the road uh, where Best Buy is now. And uh, it was me and, and three of my friends, one of which was your chairman of Deacons, Dave Bowler, and then four other guys that one of our friends had brought. Uh, so we were playing four on four. And um, one play in, stands out in my mind uh, where Dave was the quarterback and I was a wide receiver. And the plan was for me to run a, a stop and go. And the way that works is that as the play unfolded, you know, you, you, you hiked the ball. I ran out five yards. I stopped and I turned around. And at that moment, Dave, who was the quarterback, he pump fakes. Well, he's right-handed. Weirdo. He pump fakes. And then I took off, stop and go. So I took off. And the whole point was that, you know, you get some distance between you. You fake out the defense, the defender. And, and you, you know, you complete the pass. Well, turns out Dave throws a beautiful 20 yard strike and I catch that ball in stride and I just, I run as fast as I possibly can. And I look back and the guy that was covering me, who's carrying significant less mass than I was, he's kind of fading away. I'm actually gaining distance on this guy. The play goes for a touchdown. It was probably the highlight of the game for me. But as we're trotting back to uh, the, the group of guys to reset things, uh, the guy who was covering me, he says, wow, you're pretty fast for a big guy. <sighs> no, I'm looking at him and I'm thinking to myself, how in the world do I respond to that? I mean, do I say, oh, well, you know, you're pretty slow for a thin guy. 
I mean, it's like, it's like, I'm not pretty fast for a big guy. I'm pretty fast for you. And that's all that mattered. But see, he had, he had judged me based on what I looked like. And he had expected something of me that I exceeded, let's say. Uh, and I was, as I was thinking, I thought of another time. Um, this one happened, uh, when I was in high school. And, uh, I think it's still this way. But when you're in high school, you have to take one year of gym class. I'm looking at students. Do you still have to do that? Yeah? Okay, so you have to take one year of gym class. Um, and most people try and get it done in their freshman or their sophomore year. So here I was, 14 or 15, in gym class. And in my class, there were four guys who were friends, and they had sort of decided by themselves that they were the class athletes. They were better than everybody else. So what that meant was that they always got to be the captains when we picked teams and we did team sports. So two of them would be the captain of each one of the teams, and and they would pick their other buddy as the first pick and then fill out the rest of the teams. Now, what you have to know is that I was almost always at the tail end, if not the very last one, picked. I didn't think it was fair, but, you know, I don't get to make the rules in high school. would have been a lot different if I could have. But... I remember one time where it was springtime, we got and we were playing soccer. Now, what you have to understand is these guys knew nothing about soccer. They didn't even like soccer. They liked football. They liked basketball. But they didn't really care about soccer or like it. And yet still, for some reason, they got to be the captains when we played soccer. So two of the guys are the captains, and, and their first two picks are the, the other two guys. And, and the third pick comes up, and one of them says, I'll take Kempson. Like, me? Because what you have to understand is, like those guys, I don't know anything about soccer. You know, soccer's a fine sport. If you really enjoy soccer, have at it. I'm not going to get in your way, but it's just not one of my favorites. Never really played it growing up. I I always thought, you know, God gave you two hands, use them, but, you know, I'm weird. Um, But half the time, I can't even even spell soccer, S-O-C-C. E-R. See, half the time I spell it S-O-C-C-O-R. But, you know, this is how much I know about soccer. But he says, I'll take Kempson. So I'm thinking to myself, huh, he must have been paying attention all year. He, you know, he noticed when we were playing football, he noticed those crisp routes that I was running, and he didn't throw me the ball. He noticed when we played basketball that pick that I set so that he could score his 56th point. He was noticing that I'm not that bad of an athlete. So here I am, the third pick overall. Puff out my chest a little bit, hold my head high, look the other students, (laughs) strut over to my new team, and there I am, the third pick. The second pick on this team, third pick overall. And then the other team, the rest of the team is filled out, and then we kind of go to our separate huddles. Do you even call them huddles in soccer? Uh, our huddles, and, and the guy looks at me and he says, what do we do? And I just told you, I don't know anything about soccer. So I ran in my mind, like, what, what are the positions in soccer? What are the strategies that work? So I, I looked at him and I, and I went, what? <laughs> he said, you're on the soccer team, right? More calculations in my mind, and I went, So at this point in time, he has figured out that he has wasted his third pick on someone that he thought was on the school soccer team, and this person was going to take his team to victory, and he wasted it on me, who was not on the soccer team. And at that moment, he let fly 
a string of insults and curse words that would make a sailor blush. And I just had to sit there and take it because he was bigger than I was. Um, not bigger, but bigger. Um, I had to sit there and take it because I didn't know anything about soccer. And when he was done, he kind of looks at me with disdain up and down, turns to the gym teacher and says, can we pick new teams? You see, this is what happens to me, happen, has happened to me my entire life when it comes to sports. I am always misjudged. People lobby judgments against me, and none of them seem to be right. But if we're honest, none of us really likes to be judged. I'm going to guess that you don't like it when someone judges you, whether it's a significant thing or an insignificant thing. We just don't like it. And yet, we all do it. We all judge the world around us. It's how we make sense of the world. We categorize things so that we can understand them better. It's how we, you know, figure out what we like, what we don't like. It's how we stay safe. If you're walking in the, on a mountain path and it splits and you can go left or you go right, you look left, there's a mountain lion. You look right, there's a bunny rabbit. You're going to go right because the left on the left side, that guy wants to eat you. On the right side, that guy might give you some Cadbury Easter eggs. So it's a, it's a safety thing, and usually it's okay. You know, if you make a judgment that you like, you like pepperoni and sausage, but you don't really like green onions or onions and green peppers, that's okay. By the way, the right answer there is pepperoni and sausage. I think we might be seeing where my husky problem comes from. <laughs> that's right. Um, but if you decide that you like red better than blue, that's okay. If you decide that you think you look, you look better in this outfit versus that outfit, or you like this music versus that music, that's not a big deal. That's okay. That's what we all do. The problem comes when we start to offer up judgment about people around us. And particularly the problem comes when that judgment has attached to it a condemnation of that person. And that is what James wants us to think about as we read this passage. So go ahead and pull out your, uh, your phones or your Bibles or whatever. Turn to James chapter 4, verse 11 or 12. Funny thing happened on my last birthday. My family, as a weird present, I don't know when, I don't know why, they took all of my books and swapped them out with smaller books. So everything is tinier, and I don't quite know why they did that. But anyhow, so uh, James chapter 4, uh, verses 11 and 2. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, if you're reading that, you probably um, might have recognized these verses and said, you know, that sounds really familiar. Didn't Jesus say something about this? And in fact, Jesus did. In the book of Matthew, chapter 7, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And when he's giving this message, Jesus tells them, tells the people, don't judge. Right? That's what Jesus says. And you know, it's at this point in time that the world, the people that are outside the, the walls of Christianity, they their ears perk up. They're like, don't judge. Oh, I like that verse. That's a good verse. Bible says... You're not allowed to judge. If you judge, you're a bad Christian, so you can't judge anything that I do. Don't you judge me. But the thing is, that's not exactly what Jesus said, and that's not what James is saying here either. Jesus actually said, and I learned it in King James, judge not lest ye be judged. And what Jesus was saying is that, you know, there's a standard here. 
And don't apply your own standard when you're judging someone else because that same standard is going to be used against you. Um, and James is not also not saying that we're not allowed to offer any kind of judgment about someone's behavior based on biblical standards. I think to understand what James is getting at, it would be helpful for us to do maybe a quick word study, look at a couple phrases that James uses. The first one I want us to look at is, it starts at the very beginning of verse 11 where he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. He uses that same phrase, do not speak evil against two or three more times uh, in the context of verse 11. And the phrase there is a Greek word, kataleleo. I give that to you only because I, pr- I practiced a lot to be able to say that right. I did get it right, right? Whew. All right. So this phrase here, it's, it's not just simply saying mean things to someone or gossiping about them. That's not to minimize those behaviors because the Bible is clear that we are to not say mean things and gossip about other people. This phrase, though, is a little bit stronger than that. Uh, if you have an NIV version of the Bible, your Bible translates that word as slander. And that's a pretty good translation of the word because if you think about slander, what does it mean when we slander someone else? When we slander someone else, we are telling lies about that person in order to tear down their reputation with the added benefit of building up our reputation in the process. Oftentimes, slander comes from a place of self-righteousness. Slander is a big deal. We have laws against slander in our country, and that's what James, the word that James chooses to use. Now, this this phrase, kataleleo, is actually used a couple of other times in the Bible, particularly Peter uses it in his first letter, 1 Peter. And he uses the phrase when he's, and he's talking about situations where people outside of the church are making accusations of people inside of the church to, to hurt them in a legal sense or in the public square. So in other words, when people outside the church, Peter is saying, people are going to slander you from the outside and say all manner of vile and vicious things against you. By the way, Peter's advice to us when people outside of the Christian church lob or you know lob those accusations against us because we're Christians, his advice is listen, just live a righteous life. Because if you live a righteous life, reasonable people will hear those accusations and will realize those accusations are ridiculous and they will dismiss them out of hand. But that's the way that Peter uses it, the idea that the world is slandering Christians. And I think that's helpful for us because when we look at James, Pastor Randy has been taking us through uh, all of James and the the preceding verses that we talked about with, that Pastor Randy's talked to us about, have been about, well, what are the problems in the church right now? What is causing dissension in your ranks? What's dividing you? And James says, well, the problems that you're having is that you're looking too much like the world. You're behaving like the world behaves. And then he just smoothly transitions into these verses that we're reading here today where he says, don't slander, because that's what the world does. James is just continuing to tell us you you have these divisions because you're doing the things that the world does. So the world slanders you. Don't slander each other. So I think that we see that. And we see that, okay, so it's not just a matter of just passing a simple judgment, saying a mean thing or gossiping about someone. It's a little bit deeper than that. It's, it's, it's maliciously tearing someone down so that you, in contrast to them, look better and look a little bit more righteous 
uh, in your own actions. The other word that I think we need to consider is the word that he uses multiple times, judge. Now, the Greek word for judge, krino, and our word for judge are similarly broadly defined. Uh, if you were to look up judge in our dictionary and in our Greek dictionary, the definitions are almost the same. And it can be simple, innocuous things like, um, you know, personal taste. You judge between personal taste. That's, you know, your pizza toppings, your favorite color, that sort of thing. It can be, you know, basically just choosing one thing over another. It's not the one thing is better. It's just you have to choose that thing. So you judge, you judge, you take the thing. Or it can be something simple like just taking a measurement. I judge that this plank of wood is long enough to get me across uh, the river, the riverbed, if I put it across the ravine or whatever. You know, there, there are simple definitions like that that the Greek word also has, but then there are, are, are a little bit more complicated, um, harsh, if you will, more substantial definitions, uh, like judging between what is morally right and morally wrong, giving a judgment about what is good and what is bad. There's another kind of judge, obviously, the noun, whereas the guy who sits on, on, on the bench and basically, you know, gives a legal opinion about who did right, who did wrong, who broke the law, who didn't break the law, that sort of thing. But then the final definition of judgment is one that is tied to condemnation. In other words, when you judge something, you are condemning it. You have judged automatically. There was no question whether or not it was good. It was definitely bad. And you are then condemning it. You're, you're, you know, subjecting it to punishment. And I think it's these latter definitions that James has in mind as he's telling us not to judge each other because when we judge each other, we judge the law. So I I think that we know that that's the case based on the context. So uh, take a look there. If you look at the second half of uh, verse 11, James says, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. The thing is, when you slander your brother or your sister, when you say, when you, when you maliciously tear them down with lies, you're actually violating God's law. There are plenty of laws, uh, enumerated in the Old Testament. Of course, we've got thou shalt not lie from the old, from, from the Ten Commandments, but there are other specific laws that talk, talk specifically about slander and how you are not to do it. Furthermore, there's other passages in the New Testament where Paul and, and Peter tell us that we're not to slander because this is a sin. But when you do it, when you slander someone and you judge someone based on the slander that you're engaged in, what you're actually doing is you're saying that these laws that God has put into place about slander, they don't apply to me. I'm better than that. I don't need to follow those laws. And what you are doing is you are actually offering a judgment against God's law. You're saying, God, you didn't get it right when you said don't slander because that doesn't apply to me. So that's what he means when he said, when you do these things, you actually judge the law. You're not doing the law, but you're judging the law, okay? And then he goes on to say there uh, in the first half of 12, he says, there is only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy. Obviously, he is talking about God here. And he is saying, listen, God is the only one that has the rightful place to judge ultimately, to judge what is right, what is wrong. Furthermore, it is only God who is able to determine who will be saved and who will be destroyed. In other words, who receives the gift of salvation and who will get their rightful punishment for their actions, which is destruction or death through sin. 
It is only God that is able to do that. So when we, though, stand in judgment of our brother, we slander them, and we offer with that slander a condemnation of their actions and of them, what we're actually doing is we are usurping the rightful role of God. And what's it called when we try to be God? That's called sin, okay? So the irony here is that when you do what James is warning us against, when you look at your brother and say, oh, you're a terrible sinner, you're doing this and that and the other thing, you are legitimately engaged in sin yourself in that exact same moment. And you're telling God, but your laws don't apply to me. You have become a judge in and of yourself. Well, let's finish off the passage there uh, where James says there in the, sec- the last half of 12, he says, who are you to judge your neighbor? This also echoes what Christ said when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. You remember Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged. And then he talks about the standard that you use will be used against you. But do you remember what he did after that? He went on to tell kind of a funny anecdote, but made a really profound point. He said, listen, which one of you can look at your brother and sister and see a speck of dust in their eye and think that you can help them get that speck of dust out when you yourselves have an entire plank sticking out of your eye? So he says, you need to take the plank out of your eye first before you can even start to help your brother or your sister. The idea here is that the judgment that you are offering against your brother or sister for their actions is coming from a place of hypocrisy. And this is the other problem with what, with what James is alluding to here is that this comes from a place of hypocrisy. That you yourself are guilty and yet you're levying judgment against someone else and proclaiming their guilt. That doesn't make sense. Hypocrisy is not the goal here. Hypocrisy is bad. So James here is not telling us, listen, he's not saying to us, he's not forbidding us from, from exercising spirit-led, biblically-based judgment upon those in sin. In other words, telling them, look, what you're doing is not pleasing to God. God has a command about this, and he says that you should be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that. James is not forbidding us from doing that. Rather, what James is forbidding us from doing is coming at it from a hypocritical and malicious standpoint. One where we just want to point out in someone else's life what's wrong with them, but we don't want it pointed out in our life. We want to condemn them for what they're doing, all the while we are super guilty of doing something just as bad, offering up that slander. So this is what James is doing for us. Now, at this point in time, as I was reading this, I got to the end of it, And I thought to myself, this is problematic for me because um, I don't know if you're like this, but it seems all too often my natural inclination, the first thing that I want to do is to offer up that snap judgment and that condemnation of someone else. When someone else is doing something that I don't like, something, even maybe something that I know is wrong based on the Bible, my initial reaction is to look at that person and go, sinner. And offer a condemnation. That's my natural inclination. So how how do I get from that to what James is commanding us to do? One of the the dangers of uh, preaching, I think, um, and teaching as well, is that if you stand before a group of people and you proclaim God's word, you tell them what God's commands are, eventually 
probably really quickly and probably often, you will come to something that you have to proclaim to someone else that you yourself know you're guilty of. It's one of the dangers of teaching. It's why James earlier in this passage says, listen, not many of you should teach because you're held to a higher standard. It's, it's one of the reasons why I really am hesitant to, to teach. When Pastor Randy asked me to preach today, I was really hesitant because I knew that no matter what we talked about, I was going to be guilty of what I had to tell you guys, stop doing it. And that's one of the problems. Now, I actually think that James might have felt a little bit like this as he was writing these words. Let's consider for just a moment who James was and consider his biography, what we know about it. Um, James is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, The Bible tells us um, that Jesus had at least four brothers who are named and two sisters who are not. It's possible Jesus had more siblings than that, but that's those are the ones that the Bible tells us about. And of those that are named, James is the first name, which tells us that James was Jesus's oldest brother, not his older brother, his oldest brother. Uh, James was probably just based on, you know, the way things worked in families back then. James was probably no more than a couple years younger than Jesus. So he was sort of Jesus's contemporary, particularly when they became adults. And, and he lived in the household with Jesus. So he grew up with Jesus, who we know was perfect, managed never to sin, was never a problem for his parents. Even when the one case where Jesus stayed behind at the temple, that wasn't Jesus being disobedient. It was Mary and Joseph not getting what was going on. How difficult would that be as a parent? Because uh, I know that a lot of the times the, the problems that my kids have, I've actually introduced in their lives because I'm a terrible parent. But Mary and Joseph, though, dealt with Jesus, who was perfect, and James was in this same household, okay? And he lived with Jesus, and he knew Jesus, and he knew who Jesus was and how Jesus acted. And yet what we find is in the gospel, whenever James and the family is mentioned, it's usually in an unfavorable light. For instance, in, early on in Mark, I believe it's in uh, chapter uh, chapter 3, Check my notes. Do, 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 do. Should have trusted. Yeah, chapter 3. Early on in, in, uh, uh, in Mark chapter 3, um, Jesus has found his way home. He's actually in Capernaum, which is real close to Nazareth, so it's considered home. And he's teaching and he's preaching. And Mark tells us that when his family heard about what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was saying, they went to seize him. In other words, the word there is they literally went to arrest him, to grab him, take him off the streets, take him off the stage, force him to stop talking, force him to stop doing what he was doing. And Mark goes on to say they did this because they thought he was out of his mind. Now, I will remind you, James is probably the ringleader here because at this point in time, we believe that Joseph has died. So, and Jesus has not taken up the family business, and he has gone off to be this itinerant preacher. So James was left behind to be sort of the new head of the household. So when the family comes to seize Jesus, James is the ringleader here. And what do they say? They think that Jesus is crazy. So here we see James, the brother of Jesus, 
thinking that his brother is crazy. If that's not a judgment and a condemnation, I don't know what is. Later in Mark, uh, Jesus finds himself once again coming home. This passage you might remember. Uh, he comes home to Nazareth, and, and there he is rejected by the entire place. And in response to that, Jesus says, uh, there in Mark chapter 6, verse 4, he says, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that usually prophets receive a certain level of honor. And yet I am receiving dishonor, not just in my hometown by people that didn't live with me, but by my own household. You are dishonoring me. You are not honoring who I am and what God sent me to do. And he's saying this to and about James. In fact, uh, a few verses later, uh, Mark records for us that Jesus marveled at their unbelief, marveled at the unbelief of his own family. Now, I don't know, but how unbelieving do you have to be for God incarnate to go, whoa, and marvel at it? I mean, that's pretty significant, how much they didn't believe. Furthermore, um, there's, a, there's a passage for us in, in the Gospel of John, where again, Jesus meets up with his brothers and his brothers are actually mocking him for what he's doing. Uh, and they basically say to him, Jesus, look, if you, if you think you're the Messiah, just proclaim it, proclaim it and go take your throne and let's be done with all this nonsense. Now they didn't think that Jesus was the Messiah. They were making fun of him. They were, they were calling Jesus's bluff. And then John gives us this little tidbit. He says, for not his own, for not even his own brothers believed in him. So do you see the picture that's being painted here? Jesus found rejection in his own family. Jesus found rejection in his brother James. He didn't find acceptance. He found judgment and condemnation from James. And I'll remind you about one other thing. When Jesus died on the cross, he is in extreme agony. He is in his hour of greatest need. He could use support like you wouldn't believe. Who do we see at the foot of the cross? Well, we see his mother Mary beside herself with grief that her son is being put to death. But do we see James there comforting Mary, standing up for his brother, showing support? No. In fact, we see the disciple John. And Jesus has to say to John, look at Mary, take care of her like she was your mother. Because James is nowhere to be found. But the story doesn't end there. In Acts chapter 1, um, we get an, an allusion to James again and his other brothers. And it says that, that the disciples were in the upper room with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers praying. And then we find out in Acts, if we keep reading, that James actually becomes the lead pastor, if you will, of the church in Jerusalem. The very first Christian church, James becomes the lead pastor. So he becomes a prominent leader in the Christian church. Now, you got to ask yourself, how do you go from someone who looks at Jesus and says, that guy's insane, judges Jesus, condemns Jesus, doesn't believe anything that Jesus says about himself, 
And then later, just a few pages later, just a few years later in the actual events, you see a man who has totally sold out to Jesus and is a leader in Jesus' church. What makes the difference? Well, I'll tell you what makes the difference. If you want to, uh, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And here in 1 Corinthians, this is, this is written by Paul. Um, Paul is, is giving a defense uh, for, for various reasons of, the, re- of the, uh, 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 the resurrection because there was a problem in that church about not believing in the resurrection. Not necessarily interesting stuff, but not important to what we're, we're talking about here. But in the midst of it, Paul gives what, what many people believe, and I agree with, is an early church creed. Um, a creed uh, is just something, um, it's a belief statement. Uh, so uh, churches used to uh, recite creeds as, as part of uh, their, their worship services often. Uh, we don't do it so much anymore. I would argue when we when we used to sing the, the doxology, that was sort of a, a creedal activity. We would sing it, and it was just a reminder to ourselves and to those around us and a broadcast to the world that this is what we believe about God and what he is worthy of. So this is what a creed is, and Paul uses in his defense of what he's talking about this creed. And it's in this creed that gives us a clue to what happened to James. So starting in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, it says, For I, Paul, delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and what he, uh, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve disciples. Then he appeared, appeared to more than 500 brothers, that's recorded for us actually in Acts, at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, these people are still alive. So if you think that I'm lying about this resurrection thing, go ask them, and they'll back up my story. And then Paul gives us this in verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul. So here we see what happened in James's life that took him from condemning and judging Jesus to fully embracing Jesus as Lord and being a leader in the church. What was that thing? Well, he experienced his brother, who he thought was dead and buried, raised to life, standing there in front of him. If that doesn't grab your attention, I don't know what does. In that moment when he saw something that doesn't ever happen, he sees his brother who had claimed to be God, who had claimed to be Messiah, who had been put to death, and yet he's standing there alive in front of me. The Holy Spirit got a hold of James's heart, got a hold of James's mind, convinced him that Jesus Christ was Lord, and in that moment, James dedicated, gave his life to Jesus, received salvation. His heart was changed, his mind was changed, his will was changed, and we go from James that rejects Jesus to James that proclaims Jesus. And that's what we need if we are to put into practice what James tells us about judging the people around us and condemning us. Because look, if you try to do this on your own, because, you know, I just want to be a better person I want everybody to get along. It's just a nice thing to do. But if you try to do these things on your own, you're going to fail. I would fail. I know because I have failed when I try to do these things on my own. It is the only, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit changes you day by day to be made into the likeness of Jesus Christ, 
that you will step out of your old sinful ways of judging and condemning and into what James is calling us here to do. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the thing. Just because it's a work of the Holy Spirit, and it is, and only the Holy Spirit can do it, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't use some ideas that we can maybe put into practice to help get us there. I believe fully that's how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. So let me offer to you three things to remember so that you can do what James is saying, or rather not do what James is telling us not to do, offer up judgments and condemnations. And we'll close with this, okay? So the first thing is that you should re- we should remember that that person who we are about to judge is someone who was made in the image of God. They are an image bearer of God. And when God made that person in his image, just like he made you in his image, he poured into that person intrinsic value and worth. And when we offer up nothing but judgment and condemnation to someone, what we are actually saying is, I don't value what God put in you. I don't value what God has to say about you. What I say about you is more important than what God says about you. So that's the first thing. Remember that that other person is an image bearer of God. The second thing is, we need to realize that we don't know the whole story. We don't know what that other person's life is completely like. We don't know how they were raised. We don't know how much their mom and dad messed them up. I mean, my mom and dad didn't mess me up any. But, you know, other people, I know their moms and dads, you know, do things that kind of affect them. We don't know if that person is, you know, fighting with their spouse. We don't know if that person is dealing with a a sick relative or or maybe they just got fired from a job and they don't know what they're doing and, and, and they're behaving strangely because of that. We don't know any of that. So the problem is when we offer up judgments against other people, it comes from a place of incomplete knowledge. This is why we make terrible judges and why God tells us not to do it. Because when we offer up judgment, we're doing it knowing less than the full facts. When God offers up judgment, he knows everything. In fact, he ordained that person's life. He has decrees for that person's life. He knows everything about them, everything that they've ever done. And his judgments then, based on what they have done, are perfect where ours are imperfect. So I offer that to you as number two. Well, you don't realize you don't know everything about that person. Maybe a little bit of benefit of the doubt is due here. And the third thing, and this is, you know, maybe, you know, really, really important. I will remind us that we all stand as sinners deserving God's judgment and God's condemnation. We have done things. This is what Paul tells us in Romans. We have done things. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what's the payment for sin? Well, the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. And yet all of us, having been found in Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit revealed him to us, all of us stand before that judgment seat of God, and instead of receiving our due and right judgment and penalty and condemnation, what do we get instead? We get grace and we get mercy. So if we remember that we deserve judgment, we deserve condemnation, and yet we receive grace and mercy, then perhaps when we look at someone else, before we pronounce judgment, before we pronounce condemnation, perhaps it might be better if we offered up grace and mercy. 
because that's what we received. So I give you those three things. That other person's an image bearer of God. You don't know their full story. And you received grace and mercy. Perhaps we should give grace and mercy as well. Now, I want to give you a bonus thing, and this will be our challenge. How do you do these things? I mean, these are just sort of mind exercises. How do you actually put it into practice? Um, you are going to, this week, have an opportunity to offer up a judgment. It might be something significant. It might be something minuscule. You know, the, the age-old example of driving in traffic. You're going to get cut off, and your inclination is going to be to offer up a judgment that that person is the worst human being that ever lived. How dare they drive? I hope the cops pull them over and take away their license. Oh, by the way, when I cut that guy off back there, not a big deal. But you're going to be able to offer up a judgment in some way. Let me offer you this. Instead of to sort of short-circuit that inclination to judge and to condemn, pray for that person. Offer up a prayer for that person rather than a judgment. See, I find that when I pray for someone that I'm frustrated by and that I want to offer up a judgment, or maybe I already have in my heart and mind, my prayers go from, God, you need to take that person, you need to smite them, you need to tell them every single which way that they're wrong, you need to show them that they are lower than dirt. If my prayers start that way, a funny thing is the Holy Spirit doesn't let them stay that way. What happens is the Holy Spirit gets a hold of my heart and my mind, and he tells me, you need to stop praying that, and you need to pray this. And at the end, my prayers are, you know what, God? I pray that you bless that person. I pray that you draw that person close to you. I pray that you make them conform to Jesus' likeness, that they have joy, that they have it abundantly, that you draw them into your family. See, it's hard then, after you've prayed a prayer like that, to sit in judgment and condemnation of somebody. You start to look at that person a different way. I find that this happens a lot with prayer, by the way, that prayer, when I pray for other people and things they're not doing right, it doesn't change those other people as much as it changes me and the way I look at those other people. So I offer that to you as our challenge this week, uh, that when you come across someone who's just annoying you, uh, is, has done something wrong against you, uh, maybe not against you, but you, you just think they need their comeuppance. Rather than offering up a snap judgment and a snap condem- condemnation, rather take their name to the throne room of Almighty God and lay it at his feet in prayer. And maybe God will convict that person of whatever you think they were doing is wrong. More likely than not, the Holy Spirit will look at you and say, I'm going to take care of him. Let's take care of you right now. Why don't you back off? Why don't you offer a little bit of grace and mercy? So if you do that, I think that we can honor what James is telling to us here in James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And we won't offer those judgments. We won't offer those condemnations. But rather, we will give the grace and the mercy that we were given and we've been told then needs to pour out of our hearts and our lives. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to come together this morning. Father, we acknowledge that your word is good. Father, your commands are holy and your judgments are perfect. And Father, we pray that where we fall short of them, that your Holy Spirit will get a hold of our hearts and minds, will change us, 
that we might be made to be more like Jesus. When we are ready to offer up a judgment, a condemnation, a slanderous thought, a slanderous word against our brother, that the Holy Spirit would arrest our hearts and minds in that moment and conform us so that in, it, in its place we offer up love and grace and mercy to the people, the brothers and sisters around us. And in so doing, Father, our ultimate prayer is that we are found pleasing to you that you look at us and you say, well done, good and faithful servant, and that we delight you because, Father, it's absolutely true that you delight us. We love you, we praise you, and we honor you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.